This fic is rated ah. Uh... For February 20th, 2007, this is episode 2 of Potherfic Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Hey Ron, the next time you're Welcome to episode two, everybody. This is Ryan. And I'm Rena. And Kim. Glad to have you back. We got a lot of feedback from our first show. Did not think it was going to be as popular as it was. Lots of compliments, lots of discussion, including a very special email that we received. I think you guys are familiar with the one I'm talking about here. Yes. We received an email from Xenia, one of the co-authors of After the End. Very nice email. She responded to a lot of the points we raised in last week's discussion of the prologue through chapter three. I'm actually not going to go into a lot of detail on it, except to say, listen to the entire show, agree Which with a lot. we are gracious for. We are extremely gracious for. Um, she she mocked me a little bit. Well, not. She made fun of you for being a fanboy. She, well, <laughs> she did make fun. No, she actually commented that I was more like a Weasley and that perhaps we read after the end more than she did. So she would actually be nervous speaking to us and that shouldn't be the other round. Uh, <laughs> very great person. Uh, very laid back. Very easy to talk to. And I stress very easy to talk to because one of the worst kept secrets on the forum is that Arabella and Xenia will be on the show. We're planning to wrap up our discussion of After the End sometime around episode 12 or episode 13. We're going to cover all of the chapters. We're going to cover the outtakes. And we are going to have Arabella and Xenia on the show after that to answer any questions, to take voicemails from listeners, and just to discuss this amazing work they have created. If anyone has any questions that they would like to ask either of these fantastic authors, you can leave us a voicemail at our Gizmo voicemail box. You can send us an email, or you can contact us through our forums. Contact information is available on our website, potterfickweekly.com. We would just like to reiterate our thanks to Harry and the Potters for the music they have offered us to use during this show. We would also like to thank Leela Starsky for the amazing fan art that we have up on potterfickweekly.com. You can check out her artwork at maythemusebewithyou.com, M-U-S-E, maythemusebewithyou.com. And I would also like to especially thank... Danielle for the artwork that she gave me for Christmas last year, which we are using on the iTunes feed at the top of each episode as it's released. It's the uh, drawing of Harry. She was listening to episode one last week, and she was listening to me thank everybody, and she was waiting for me to thank her and didn't, so I'm a terrible boyfriend, and we talked. So I would just like to thank her very much for the great artwork (laughs) that she has uh, contributed uh, to the show. And so you won't be sleeping on the couch tonight. Uh, apparently I will, because this episode doesn't come out till Tuesday. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That's going to be a problem. Uh, you can tough it out for a couple of more nights then. <laughs> a- absolutely. Just some feedback we have from last week's episode from Jen on the forums uh, regarding Chapter 3, when Ron sneaks up behind Hermione in the kitchen. Jen writes, I think, after rereading, that Ron coming up scaring her was a bit insensitive, considering they've only just been out of war. Instead of being scared, wouldn't she have been better prepared for the unseen attack? She really should have laid one on Ron, some curse or something. 
I went back and I, and I reread the scene, and she raises a good point there. I think that was a little sheepish of Ron to charge up at you know Hermione and try and frighten her days after a massive <laughs> battle. So definitely agree with that one. She also writes in the forums, she thought it was a bit weird that Harry was concerned with Ginny not getting her seventh year at Hogwarts. I actually really liked that part. I thought it showed that Harry was dancing around the big button issues and just nipping at the edges. He was concerned that Ginny was sunburned. He was concerned that her schooling was disrupted when there were clearly more important issues that he just wasn't ready to address yet. Well, and that kind of gets back into something we were also discussing, which is I think that trauma has on people. That's something that we're really going to see more in the chapters we're discussing today is how Harry has reacted to all these things that have happened. And I think that one of the easiest things to do when you've experienced something that's bad and traumatic is to focus on something other than themselves. It does show that Harry just really needs to heal. He has so much that he needs to face. So take baby steps. Start off with being concerned that someone that you have a very complicated relationship with can't go to school next year and is sunburned. And when has Harry really ever put himself first in anything? We're once again capturing good characterization by Harry putting Ginny before himself, because Harry never puts himself before anyone else in the books or in most canon-like fan fiction. Oh, I think that's true. I think her concern was that Harry was concentrating on little problems. He was concentrating on Ginny not being able to go to school next year, but he won't acknowledge the expecto sacrificum spell that the two of them were so involved with, and which means so much towards their relationship. But I think there's you know many different ways to explain that, and I definitely think it works well in the story regardless. And another last concern that Jen had raised was Sirius's lack of attention towards Harry. Shouldn't Sirius be paying more attention to him and not being spending so much time on the Azkaban project? I think that's dealt with very well in the story in later chapters. Sirius doesn't believe he's an able godfather. He doesn't believe he can handle the job. So I think there's a little bit of Sirius just trying to not ignore that role, but he's trying to focus on what he believes he can fix and what he believes is relevant to his healing so he can possibly possibly be a better godfather later. I don't take that as shabby writing. I really think that's very relevant to what's to come in the story. But I just wanted to bring that up. And that also kind of ties into some feedback that we got from Xenia, who remarked about our categorizing Sirius as being kind of manic. It kind of touches in with that same thing. Why is he reacting or not spending as much time with Harry? Well, because he's focusing on this. Why is he focusing on this? because it helps him to stop focusing on other things. Exactly. And that gets into some other stuff that we're going to be discussing with the chapters that we've read for today's episode. Absolutely. So why don't we jump right into chapter four? This is the first chapter where we get to actually see more of Harry. In the past, he's been there, obviously, but it hasn't ever really been from his perspective. We haven't really learned a lot about what he's been up to and what he's been feeling, and this chapter is our first experience with Harry. And it's interesting, too, because we've had three full chapters from other perspectives where Harry is very much involved. He's very much the subject of debate. He's he's the subject that's on people's minds, and you s- see what everybody else thinks of Harry, and you see how much they dance around Harry and how to deal with him now that everything has happened. But you're absolutely right. We don't know what Harry thinks. We don't know what his responses to things are, and it's just such an interesting format to write it specifically from one perspective from one moment in the story and then switch to the later moment and just see how all the characters view each other. Yeah. And another thing that they start off, and they're studying, and Harry is saying that it's too quiet. 
there's nothing going on. You know, he's having to acknowledge things that he really doesn't want to, and he can't really help but dwell on things, even though he should be grateful that they're all alive, and he should be grateful that they're having this chance to just do nothing together. But instead... He doesn't know what to do with himself. And it's so interesting. I have the line right here in front of me. It's without the urgency of war to occupy him, Harry felt something dark buried beginning to surface at the back of his brain. And whatever it was, it was too painful to acknowledge. You may look at Harry and think that he just is not following what's going on around him. He's been so sheltered emotionally during so much of his life that he just doesn't understand things. Harry gets it. Harry understands how troubled he is. He understands that there's so much he has to face it's painful to do that there is right. so there is so much buried beneath the surface and one thing i love about this story is when you read the prologue and you see Ginny walk up to harry so resolute say she is willing to die for him that she loves him he instantly knows what that means he has concrete proof like we talked about in episode one he has concrete proof that she feels it and as a reader you would think they are involved or something will happen it's days later Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I give Arabella and Xenia so much credit. To write it in that way, it completely throws you off. And there's so many points. I've read this story before. I'm, I've been rereading it over the past couple of days. There's so many points where I get to a line of dialogue, and it blows me away because it's written in such a way that you just wouldn't expect that to happen. You don't expect a week later neither of these characters to acknowledge what they just went through for very different reasons. Right. You know, she's not pushing it because she doesn't want to push him away. And he's not saying anything because he doesn't have any idea what he wants to say. And he doesn't understand why she feels that way. But, of course, he's Harry Potter. He's not going to sit down with her and ask her because that's not what Harry does. Right. And it says that it's supposed to be a good summer. They were supposed to be having fun. He shouldn't feel so listless. And, you know, and I think it's funny that he picks up the apparition book just to have something to do, really. And Hermione is just like, what? Can I, can I help you? What, what's going on? And, well, and it's so interesting because this is... Because, tr- because that's the only way she knows how to help him. She's never been the emotional support for him. She's always been the, okay, if there's a problem, I'm going to find the solution and I'm going to do it with books. So if he's looking at a book, that means he has a problem and I can fix it. And She's the- like a cocker spaniel. <laughs> And I just want to jump into a um, a comment Mac writes on the forum that based on everything that Harry had gone through with the Dursleys, if he was raised by the Weasleys, he would be a much different person. He would be a person that may be able to sit down with Ginny and talk about what's going on. And you see that from Ron throughout this chapter. He tries to get in there and he tries to point Harry in the right direction. He tries to point him back towards the rest of them. He does it very gingerly. He doesn't want to rock the boat. He knows Harry. He understands him very well. He may not know exactly how to fix this because Harry has never been this so far out before, but he he knows Harry almost better than anyone, and that's what he does. But it's just so interesting. If There's so many times reading this, you just wish that some of the characters would just sit down and talk, but they don't do that. That's not the way they are. It's not the way they've developed. Before, it really didn't do that much for me. We do finally get to Harry, but I mean, there's, I think there's so much more to be seen in other chapters. It's more of a time for figuring out Harry and stuff while the other chapters, things are happening. Why all of us are here because of Harry Potter. Really wasn't anything new for Harry. Well, I want to disagree with that too on a couple of levels. 
there's there's so many things about Harry that we've been guessing about over the past few chapters. I think it's interesting to have them either confirmed or to see how he would characterize them. One thing, when Ron is spathing with Hermione and Ron is mocking how into these apparition books and how into studying she is, Harry tries to laugh, but he can't laugh. He knows it should be funny. Things just aren't funny to him anymore. And it just shows you how emotionally drained the character has become. He's not himself. He knows he's not himself, and he doesn't know what to do about it. And I think just the relationship between Ron and Hermione, and this is something we talked about before, they're not the focus of this chapter, so you don't know what they're thinking. But just from the words that were written, you can just see what's going on. In Chapter 3, Hermione received all of these owls with the job offers, and she's received now 26 out of 27, and you just see the effect it has on Ron. He's angry. He's bitter. He doesn't want her to leave. He feels like she may be abandoning them because now they've all come back together and she's on her way out. And the one line that really jumped out at me was Ron made a reference to the bloody job offers, and Hermione turns to him and says, you told me not to talk about the bloody job offers. So number one, you know he's been complaining to her about it, but number two, Hermione just said bloody job offers. Hermione doesn't swear. And he instantly jumps up because he knows that he's gone too far, and you can just see the the strain between these characters. And Jen in the forums talks about she found it a little bit unbelievable that these characters could get through war with their love intact, and then, you know, a few days after the final battle, they seem to be falling apart, and they seem to be bickering more than usual. I find that completely realistic. I think when you're in a wartime scenario, you hold on to what you do have, and you don't face any of the problems. Now, it's the cleanup. Now, it's where do we go from here? It's the rebuilding, and I think it's completely reasonable that Ron and Hermione may be at each other's throats a little bit, because there are so many unresolved issues they need to deal with, like, where do we go from here? Well, that and they're, well, I mean, they're at each other's throats again. It's showing that they're ready to turn back to normal. They're ready to move on from the war. They're ready to go back to the way things were. They're ready to live life. You know, that, and they're not any different, really, from any other wartime couple. You know, you see, I mean, there are war brides all over the country where the woman knows her soldier's going off to war, so they run off and get married, and they don't stop to think about what's going to happen when he comes back. In this case, they were both involved in the war. They didn't stop and think, okay, what's going to happen in the future? Because they didn't know if there was going to be a future. Now, there is now a- that they're here, it's just kind of like, well, all right, we're feeling our way along. I just think it's interesting the way they have described the apparition process throughout the whole series of chapters. Because, I mean, again, this was written well before we had any idea in canon of what apparition was like. That's true. Had, How much did we, we know from Goblet of the Fire? We had a concept of it. We knew that apparition was when someone would disappear from one place and show up someplace else. We knew what that meant. But we didn't know anything about the process, the procedure, how they tested for it, anything like that. Similar to the way that they you know, or pulled their version of Ginny into the story, or, or even their version of Floor. They didn't have a whole lot of information to go on, and they just kind of had to make something up. And I think it's interesting the way that they did that. I thought it was a very descriptive way, and it's so interesting because depending on the fanfic, and Kimmy, you can comment on this more too because you've 
been reading these a lot longer than we have, it seems like every story has a vastly different view of what apparition is. In some stories, you can apparate from the borough to Washington, D.C. In other stories, you have to go through an apparition point every three miles, and it will take you days to get to your destination. I just think it's it's interesting the way they do it. So, And actually, the more I think of it, you're right. Arabella and Xenia base that entire theory of apparition and the entire infrastructure of apparition on just what we saw in Goblet of the Fire. And I think, yeah. based on what you see later in the testing, I think it it, it was a great deal of foreshadowing on their part because it, it really does ring true to the canon. In many parts of the story, not just the apparition, they fill in, like, I mean, like the scene we were talking about last episode, where they fill in what may or may not have happened when Harry's parents died. Once again, they're filling in information that we don't have in the books and some information we still don't have in the books, but they're, they're going in on a limb and writing completely original stuff, letting us know what they think happened. Your view of the Harry Potter world is just so in-depth, it is so detailed, and it fits so well with what we know, and I think that's one of the reasons the story is so popular. And just speaking to Xenia, the way she referred to the story, she was extremely modest. She mentioned that we've read it many more times than she has. She seemed almost surprised that the story this many years later is getting so much buzz. And I just think one of the reasons this story is so relevant now that we're basing the creation of a podcast around it is just because it just taps into the the very specific, very focused feeling that J.K. Rowling must have had in her when she created this world because it just seemed, it makes so much sense. I cannot distinguish between the Hermione in this fic and the Hermione that would have grown out of Goblet of the Fire. It just seems so perfect. We had an email from Lady Ty. She brought up the fact that they did such a good job characterizing the relationship between Harry and Ginny, when so far that way, I mean, of course, we've known since forever that Ginny's been absolutely lo- in love with Harry, but a lot of us expected for that to pan out and nothing to happen there. Most girls will end up with their first crush, but they do. They bring Ginny out. They bring Ginny and Harry to the forefront and bring Ginny and Harry to what they are now in Half-Blood Prince. Three or four years ago, Harry and Ginny was not that popular of a pairing in fandom. It really wasn't. And now, I mean, they, they've almost got the Harry and Ginny that we've got glimpses of in the book. So, basically, the argument that Lady Kai made, and I think it, I wasn't here at the time, so I really can't speak to it, but it just from everything I'm looking at, it seems true. Arabella and Xenia's representation of Harry and Ginny was so compelling and so well-written, it inspired more fanfic writers and actually created the Harry Ginny phenomenon. Would- I mean, you could say that this story, I mean, this story could very well be the way that m- many people would consider Cassandra Clare's trilogy was to the Draco Ginny world. It brought it to the forefront and got people interested. That's a really good point that Lady Kai made. I'm glad that she uh, reminded us of that. We should have brought that up last week. And it's true, reading this fic, you can't help but just get drawn into the relationship between Harry and Ginny. It's just so well written, and it just turns conventional writing on its head. In any conventional story, Harry and Ginny would be working towards this issue. There would be moments of awkwardness right from the beginning, and just the way it's written is so different from anything that we would expect. Let's move on a little bit here. So, so far, we're into Chapter 4. We have Ron and Hermione bickering. We have Harry unable to laugh, unable to respond to his friends. You feel so bad for him just reading what he is going through, knowing there are problems, not knowing how to fix them, not knowing how to deal with them, and the one line that just made me crack up was Harry decides he's going to go down by the lake. 
that will make him feel better because after all and Ron and Hermione go at the lake they always come back feeling better I was right. cracking up so much reading that because of course we, we we know why Ron and Hermione feel better coming back from the lake but it just shows for all Harry knows for all he understands for all he has done they're just such normal things to the rest of us that he just doesn't understand yet and it just shows why he has so many issues dealing with problems that many of us could look at and say well he could talk to this person he could talk to this person he can resolve it he's Harry Potter he doesn't do it that way Right. <laughs> well, then you have to look at how many healthy relationships Harry has actually had in his life. He had yeah. no parental figure at all until, I mean, Dumbledore came along, and Dumbledore was like a mentor figure. And then there's Hermione and Ron, who are his best friends. But, I mean, that's still not the ideal relationship of love. I mean, you love your friends, but you don't love your friends the same way you love your parents or love, like, a lover or a husband or wife. And it's so interesting in the story because it comes out over the course of these few chapters just how much Harry blames himself for what's happened. He blames himself for Lucius Malfoy's torture of Hermione's parents. Why? Because Hermione's his friend. He blames himself for the death of Hagrid. We don't know why yet, but we know over the course of these chapters that Hagrid died defending Harry. He has blood in his hands. And let me just back up to something I said in episode one. We have the Expecto Sacrificum spell, and one thing it brings into this story is it gives absolute proof to what Harry's friends have been telling him for years. They love him, they will die for him. When they say it and they mean it, he gets a burst of their magic. Harry knows for a fact his friends love him. He now knows for a fact that Ginny loves him. So this isn't your traditional fanfic where Harry just doesn't understand what's clearly in front of his face. He understands everything, but the issue that Arabella and Xenia bring to the forefront is understanding how much they are willing to sacrifice for Harry. He does not find himself worthy and he blames himself. He sees himself with blood in his hands. He is not worthy of their respect. He becomes so angry. Colin Creevy arrives in this chapter and says what I said last week, that Harry saved the Wizarding World. That offends him. He didn't do it. They all did it together, which is true. They right. all did do it together. But that just is, is so offensive to Harry because he is the person that he sees himself almost as nothing. He knows that Ginny Weasley loves him. He has absolute proof of it. She may not say it, but he knows it. She knows it. It's a given. It's on the table. The issue in the fic is that Harry sees himself as so unworthy, he has no idea why she does. Moving on to something a little different is the fact that they bring in Colin Cravey and Eloise Midgen into this story. And one of the greatest things about entire story is the little disclaimer they put at the end of this chapter where they say that this chapter is dedicated to all the Colin Creevies and Eloise Midgens in the world. Eventually, everything does turn out right in the end. I love the fact that they're in this story. Colin into this kind of smooth, you know, collected photographer, and they made Eloise, who was made fun of by Ron on several occasions, to this spectacularly attractive person. I love them in this story. I love almost every moment that Eloise and Colin have. He is so much separated from the person we meet in Chamber of Secrets. He is no longer the scrawny little high-pitched voice kid with the camera who worships the ground that Harry Potter walks on. He is bitter. He was forced out of the wizarding world. He lost his brother. He no longer feels that sense of hero worship towards what he doesn't understand and what's been talked up. He is a realist. He 
understands much more than he did before, and it's very evident. When Harry meets Colin, when Colin and Eloise come to the Lupin Lodge, the first thing he responds is, I never aged Colin in my head. Colin to him was always the scrawny little kid. We see that more and more over the chapters. Harry realizes how much time has passed. That's very relevant to me. It's something I do myself. I never aged my grandmother in my head. I never aged my father in my head. All of a sudden, people were older. It's the same thing we see in the stories with Dumbledore. In the first book, in Philosopher's Stone, Dumbledore is the wise old man who can solve all problems. In the fifth book, he is old, he is tired, he doesn't have answers, he is emotional. Dumbledore didn't change, Harry's perspective changed. So I just thought that was such an interesting point to make. Colin is so different than we remember him, but it's not because someone flicked a switch and he just changed. It was so gradual, but it was never noticed. Well, I mean, and it's just like that with with anybody. I have a hard time believing that my kid sister is going to be 21 this year. You have a hard time aging people in your life, and that's something that we all do. There was some talk on the forum when Colin Creevy arrives at Lupin Lodge, he's more adversarial with Harry. He's almost an ass to Harry, you know, about how he should just go along with the interview. The person he interacted with in the scene was Ginny, who was his friend. I think maybe if he had come upon Harry first, he would have been a little bit different about the whole situation. But he comes into the situation, and who's he talking to? He's talking to his friend. And so it could be that he just seeing Ginny there interacting with her put him more at ease. But, I mean, even that, I, I didn't really... In- take that as him being an ass. I mean, he's not really being sensitive. And it's, it's the same with Eloise Mitchin. She's someone who is so awkward, so socially awkward that no one ever really gives her a chance. No one knows her. She's a background character. And then you just look at her in this chapter and consider the role of Harry. Harry, for all of the hell he has gone through over the years, is a very decent, very naive person. Think of Eloise. She must have been taunted. She must have been neglected. She's the kid who always gets pecked last at gym class. And she is this very kind, very nervous, very shy person. And you just don't get the sense of the fact that she is in any way bitter, in any way trying to make up for what she perceives as her weaknesses. She's just a very wholesome, very kind character. And you instantly taking a liking to her in this chapter. And... Harry Potter allows himself to be interviewed by this person, which in and of itself is an amazing feat. Well, and I think it's it's a credit to the way they gave this particular character the personality that they gave to her, that she was nervous about interviewing Harry. She knows going into it that Harry does not like reporters. And Her editors you know, knew that too, I believe, which is why she's right. probably there. Everybody knew that he doesn't like reporters, so they send her on this task. She's expecting to fail. Oh, she's absolutely expecting to fail. But she turns up and, and things work out for her, which I think is just fabulous. How much do you love Ginny during this chapter? Ginny is... She, and we she's talked, Molly Weasley all over again. She is... I, I have that in my notes. Thank you. I have circled in my notes with a red pen. She is her mother's daughter. She is Molly Weasley. She's got the hands on the hips. And one of the things... I just want to continue this from episode one. The character of Ginny is so powerful in this story. She is so well written. You would expect her, and I believe Jen mentioned this on the forums, you would expect her to have given up everything for the person that she loves, to have been willing to sacrifice her life. It's mentioned she steps between Harry and a death curse. She, she will give anything for this person. She, her love has never wavered. She does not know why she loves Harry as much as she does, but she knows that she does. After doing that, time goes by, he never even acknowledges it. And he knows he needs to say something. He never even acknowledges it. 
imagine that you save someone's life and they don't even say thank you. It's never acknowledged. And her love for him is so pure that even at this moment, she grabs the notepad out of Eloise's hand and starts crossing off questions. Yeah. I, I, it, oh, it's it, it's such a great moment. Just the look on Eloise's face. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> I, I did like the bringing in of Colin and Eloise and sh- showing us that people did grow up. Like Arabella and Zenya always seem to find a way to show us a time difference. Like they don't do it six months from now. No, they show us in how people have changed. To Colin and Eloise, they show us how much time has gone past. I think it's very interesting, too. Um, there's a little bit of foreshadowing here, and I'm going to be extremely careful in my wording because we're only going up to Chapter 7, but they're very carefully worded references to Ginny touching Harry. And for those of you who have read this entire fic, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, pay attention to moments when these two characters touch. And I just think it, it was so well hidden in the story, knowing what comes up, I missed it myself until someone pointed it out to me. But I'd just like to just talk about the question that Ginny was careful to leave on Eloise's list. And first of all, she leaves questions on there that she knows will put Harry at ease. He gets to talk about serious talk about things that make him comfortable. She leaves the question on, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Because she's curious. She is so curious about what that answer is to the question, because think about it. 10 years ago, Harry was living at the Dursleys. Who, sleeping under a spider-infested staircase in a cupboard, could see himself 10 years later, spending summer at the Lupin Lodge? Right. Where does Harry see himself in 10 years? He never thought he'd make it. He thought there was no chance he would ever make it that far. One thing that was mentioned on the forums is that Ron makes the joke about Harry's future. Ron knows instantly what to say to put Harry at ease. It's the first smile I believe he has in this entire story. And it's one of those perfect moments between all of the characters where all of a sudden you have the summer at Lupin Lodge they were supposed to have. You have the moment of peace. You have the moment where all of the political concerns and the emotional trauma goes away and everyone laughs and everyone hugs and Harry looks to Ginny and for a moment Ginny's facade drops and she has tears in her eyes and they joke about Harry you know wanting to have children and to move on with his life and Ginny wonders are those going to be her kids one person on the forums I believe it was Jen asked why is Ginny crying this is the moment they never thought they'd all have together and all of a sudden we're asking you know Harry where do you think you'll be in 10 years Harry will be around in 10 years and it's the first time in Arabella and Zenny's universe where Harry knows for a fact that will happen. It, it is a good moment. I think that it was it was really, really well done. And then, you know, we've got this great moment and then towards the end of the chapter we get we get back to Mr. Angsty Harry who has to go back and be a butthead about stuff and he doesn't want to talk to Jenny because he can't. Back to the whole Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the very moody withdrawal. Right. Excuse it. You can excuse it in Order of the Phoenix because he's 15. And, you know, I don't know if any of you have spent a lot of time around 15-year-olds, but I have a brother-in-law who's 15. And I and I was 15 10 years ago, and I remember what I was like that age. I was going to say, I was 15 once. <laughs> Kim, were you ever 15? I was 15 four years ago, so... Well, that's true. <laughs> but you can excuse it because he was being a moody teenager, but... Not so much now. Now he's he's supposed to be more adult and more grown up, and he's still that moody teenager. Right. How does Ginny respond to Harry blowing her off yet again? She still loves him. And one of the things that Chapter 4 leaves us with is this realization. 
Harry loves Ginny. Ginny loves Harry. Neither of them knows why. And neither of them knows what to do about it. Neither of them knows what to do about it. And Harry is convinced it's the wrong thing. And he doesn't believe that he is worthy of Ginny. He has blood in his hands. He's responsible for so much suffering. And that's where we leave it. And that is classic Harry Potter. To anyone who has ever cracked one of these books, this is what we're dealing with on a good day. Right. Exactly. The other thing I wanted to say was, at the end of the chapter... Hermione and Ginny go off to the lake, and the guys are left alone, and Ron realizes what a moron he was in front of Eloise, (laughs) and he says, hit me with a muting charm next time. I mean, it's the classic boy says wrong thing at wrong time. And and Hermione has so much fun with that, too. What does she describe it? She describes it as Christmas is coming early this year. She gets to really rub Ron's face in it, and it is such payback for the coffee. It is such payback for the coffee. Let's move on to Chapter 5. This this is actually one of my favorite chapters. I really, really like Chapter 5. The thing I really like is that, you know, the Weasleys as a family have always struck me as kind of a working-class kind of family. Mm-hmm. And they're not ashamed of that. And they teach their children that they shouldn't be ashamed of that. But while Hermione is, you know, applying to be assistant to ministers and do all this fantastic stuff with her life, Ron gets a job at a pub. And he's proud of himself for that. And it's a very, it's a working class job. And he's proud of it because his family has taught him to be proud of being who he is. And I think that it shows such a huge amount of character for him that he is able, you know, even though he's been made fun of for being poor his whole life, he is not ashamed to to have a job as a as a barkeep, you know, that is something he's really proud of. He is so proud of it and one of the things that's so apparent is he is so afraid Hermione will look down at that. He is in love with the most brilliant person he has ever met. She is aiming so high, she has so many applications out there. She's being accepted to everything. He knows that she's going to go and do great things. She's going to leave him. He is trying to work himself through that. And you can tell when he finally admits to Hermione that he's going to be a bartender. He looks to the ground. He's so afraid she'll look down on that, that she won't be proud of him. And it just shows you how much he needs the support her of the people approval. around him. Her approval, everyone's approval. When when he takes Ginny to the pub, he is so proud that she is there. He is so happy that she is there. He hopes she'll stay the entire shift. Step away from Harry Potter. Step away from Hermione and her parents. Step away from all the characters. You have Ron Weasley. Ron Weasley's biggest journey through the books is finding out who he is. He's more than Harry Potter's best friend. Harry could be a professional Quidditch player. He could be the world's greatest horror. He is famous twice over for defeating the Dark Lord. Hermione is capable of so many things that Ron will never understand. Who is Ron? What will he do? Who is he when everyone else isn't there? I think that's his journey throughout this fic. And I think, where is that start? He's done what is hard. He's achieved great things. He wants to be a bartender for a while, make a little bit of money. He's so proud of that. And like you said, he's working class. He is just so proud of that. Yeah. He shows himself to be more than the goofy sidekick. Absolutely. Which is what he is throughout the, the novels. That's basically all Ron really gets to be is the goofy sidekick. Well, not even the goofy sidekick. He gets to be the loyal sidekick. He gets to be the... 
Harry He's Potter support mechanism. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm thinking one one right now, but that never happened in the story, fortunately. So. Yeah, right. So, and one of the things that happens in this chapter is that you get to go back to what you saw in the earlier chapter where Ron doesn't know how to respond to Harry. How do you get Harry out of his shell? You get Harry drunk. <laughs> is apparently all you need to do. And I love the scene when they're walking to the pub. Ron is trying to make small talk with Harry. Harry isn't responding. He's in his shell. He's moping. He's blaming himself. He's being classic Harry. And Ron is so gentle with him. He is not pushing. He is not Hermione, who will drill a hole in the side of Harry's head and let all of the demons out. He's Ron. He goes to the bar. He gets his buddy drunk. And I think a lot of fics out there will have a scene or two that is the come on, let's get plastered and come to Jesus kind of chat. Mm -hmm. And I think this one is really well done because it's not just them getting sloppy drunk and saying a whole bunch of things and waking up in bad form the next day. They don't try to get everyone's deepest, darkest desires out in the open by getting them plastered. Well, exactly which I think that. a lot of people do because it's an easy way out. Oh, you could so totally have, in, in the hands of a less experienced author, this chapter be where Harry starts crying about Hagrid and crying about Dumbledore and just, you know, he has a couple drinks in him and all of a sudden the walls cave in. It's so much more complicated than that. All this chapter sets out to do, and all that I believe happens at the bar, is that you have two friends who didn't really know how to relate to each other, who didn't really know how their friendship was fitting into their lives anymore, after the final battle, sitting down, having a few drinks, unwinding, and getting that connection back that wasn't there when they were walking down to the pub. And when I read this paragraph, I couldn't stop laughing, and this really just sums up why I love Chapter 5 so much. This is Ron uh, responding to why he could never play for the cannons. Ron laughed at him. Because, he answered honestly, the only team I'd want to be on is the cannons. The only position I'm really good at is keeper. Now, Oliver's also a good keeper, and he's already in the cannons, so I'd have to kill Oliver to get on the team, and then I'd be disqualified for being a murderer. So it really wouldn't work. It's too bad, because I really need to find a job. Ron shrugged aside <laughs> and kicked back another shot of the still unidentified green liquid. He's, he felt suddenly <laughs> sluggish. Hermione had two dozen job opportunities available to her, and he didn't have the foggiest idea what he wanted to do with his life. I just, I just love that thought process. He, he doesn't know where he's going. Everyone else around him has goals. For him, working at the bar is enough, because apparently his alternative is to kill Oliver Wood. Right. <laughs> that's all you need to know. Right. That's fabulous. Oh, so... And so while we have the conversation going on with Ron and Harry and Goldie, who is a great, great character, by the way. Doesn't Goldie remind you of Dumbledore a little bit? Like, not obviously the character of Dumbledore, but just the wise old man who knows everything. He's, he's more and more Mad-Eye Moody to me. Really? That's what I was thinking, yeah. How did I confuse Mad-Eye Moody and Albus Dumbledore? Anyway? Maybe well, Averforth? <laughs> yeah, I guess if we really knew that character very well, that could be a good... Well, comparison true. to make. I'm going by fanfic, Gabe, or fourth. Um, yeah, it's just... Right. It's just, <laughs> I apologize. I've read the books. I swear to God, I've read the books. Melinda Leo, you did too good of a job. Okay, but... No kidding. Absolutely. We're getting to her next, I think. But just the character. It's the wise old man who sees that Ron needs direction, gives him some. Just excellent character. Yeah. While the boys are having their fun down at the pub, we've got Hermione and Ginny having their little chat... You know, I, I envision them with, like, a Cosmo or something. Oh, yeah. Taking one of the m many, many 
quizzes that they put in those things. And I love how when at the beginning of the chapter they talk about, you know, doing the magazine quiz, everyone's like, gosh, I can't imagine they'd want to stay at home and do a quiz for fun because (laughs) they don't have any idea that it's just like a stupid, goofy, girly kind of quiz. Well, when you tell Ron Hermione wants to take a quiz she found in the magazine, it seems completely rational. (laughs) You have no idea it's not arithmancy. I mean... Right, that's true. When Hermione and Ginny are talking, doing their magazine quiz, they bring up um, Lavender and Seamus, who before Half-Blood Prince, and even now after, one of the most popular ancillary pairings is Lavender and Seamus. Um, I, I doubt anyone at this point would have predicted the Lavender and Ron in canon happening. I have to say that I really think a lot of times people don't give Lavender very much credit. But in this story, you know, they say that she was a true Gryffindor. She fought in the final battle. And, I mean, obviously, these these kids were put in Gryffindor for a reason. And just because they're not out, you know, looking for trouble <laughs> doesn't mean that they're not going to stand up when the fighting comes to them. But this is the first time where we hear about what Hermione wants to do with her life. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get introduced to the idea of the thinker, which is a person who basically builds complex spells. And Hermione wants to do it not necessarily for herself, but so that she can help her parents. And and that's one thing that always kind of stuck me about this chapter is that when you pick a career, you need to pick it for yourself not just because it's going to help someone that you know because you know there's a chance you're not going to be able to help them and that's never a guarantee and you might end up not even liking what you're doing and you're only in it as an obligation and then that can just backfire on you big time well take the character of Herrick he didn't take the job to defeat Voldemort but he had what he wanted to do with his life, but all that was put on hold. In, in that regard, Hermione is, as far as we know, the last member of her family. I don't believe we get any indication from Maribel and Xenia whether she has aunts or uncles or anyone else looking out for her parents. Her parents are in St. Mungo's. She's the only one they have left. She's a brilliant witch. She created the spell that led to Voldemort's downfall. She believes she can do this. And how can you, as Hermione, not jump at every opportunity to save your parents because one of the things that's discussed earlier Hermione feels very responsible for what happened. It's not that. I'm saying she shouldn't do it because she doesn't have the ability but she made up the Expecto Sacrificum spell without being a thinker. She did that on her own out of necessity. What I'm saying is her apprenticing herself to the thinker doesn't seem to me like it would be a necessary step for her to be able to work on something to help her parents. You understand? Well, I understand that, although at this point, if there was some direction she could take it to help her parents, I think she would have done that already. I think she feels lost. I think she certainly tried. Her parents became incapacitated, I believe, in her sixth year at Hogwarts. So it's been about two years. She hasn't found anything yet that has been able to save them. And but at the same time, she's also had a more pressing concern. True. And true. now she has extra time. I understand her desire to do it. I really, really do. But in practice, what I'm saying is picking a career for something that's that specific is generally not a good idea. Well, let me bring up two points here and see what you think. 
when discussing Colin Creevy and how his parents yanked him out of Hogwarts and how Hogwarts was empty the year after uh, the death of Dumbledore at the end of the fifth year, there's a reference to Hermione. Hermione, yeah. to beg her parents to go back to school. Now think about that. You beg, you beg, you beg your parents, let me go back into this dangerous world. They obviously agree to let you. And because you're in that world, because you're friends with who you're friends with, because you're fighting against so many powerful people, your parents are tortured. And now you are done with school. You have helped to defeat evil people. And you have the opportunity to take a job. Does she take a job with the British ambassador of magic and hope that in her spare time she can think of a complex spell that can cure people who... Think of the Longbottoms. They've been in St. Mungo's, as Hermione says, for 17 years. No one's thought of anything yet. Either Hermione needs to take time off and devote all of her time to just her parents, she needs to take a job and do that in her spare time, or she needs to find a job that she can, or find an apprenticeship, or find something that she can devote all of her time to, to try and save her parents, because now they're her priority. And I just, I couldn't see Hermione doing anything else. I could never see her working at the ministry and in her spare time working on spells. I just don't think that's our Hermione. I understand that she wants to help her parents. I mean, that's a huge thing that she can do. And yes, she does have the ability. It's the whole idea of, well, what do you do afterwards? Let's say that she is able to, to save her parents, and she does you know, come up with some grand spell to fix them. What now? Now you're in a job where the only reason you came to the job in the first place was to help your parents. Well, now they're done, and now they're better. You know, okay, what now? And then you come back to the same point where they, where they are right now. You know, where she's accomplished what she set out to do, What where does she go from here? And at the same time, you know, there is an equally large chance that there's, that there's nothing that she's going to be able to do to help them. Maybe she's wasted her entire life on a problem that she could never fix to begin with. I don't think she could live with herself if she didn't try. I very much agree with Rena on this one. The, coming the thinker would be too much focusing on one thing. Hermione needs to right. get her job with the ministry stay close to London, keep going on with life in general instead of just focusing on current curing her parents. I mean, she managed to live life at Hogwarts, go to school, and help Harry save the world. Why can't she live a normal life with Ron, keep a job at the ministry, and save her parents? And again, you know, drawing in from real life experience, you know, sometimes, you know, you have a kid who loses a parent to some kind of cancer so they decide to become a cancer researcher and they basically surround themselves they define themselves by the disease that took the life of their parent or even if they have a living parent that's suffering from some disease if they focus their entire life on it then they're defining themselves by something bad that's happened to someone they care about and it never gives them that time away from it they're constantly surrounded by something negative and something sad and something bad and they never have a chance to get away from that and to grieve and to recover and it's just it's not it's not a healthy way to respond to a problem i mean like i said i understand her motivation for doing all this i really do but when it comes to the healthy thing to do taking a job as a thinker is not what would be 
healthy. I definitely don't think it's healthy, but I think that so many characters in Rowling's world and in Arabella and Xenia's world do the unhealthy things because it is what they need to do to feel alive. And I think that Hermione, in doing anything else, would not be able to live with herself. And it may not be the most healthy thing in the world, but I think it's what she's going to do. I think sometimes in a world where you feel so powerless... Voldemort could be anywhere. You're trapped indoors. You can't go out. Your life is being held hostage by people who want to do you harm. I think that's a very incapacitating form of terrorism, and I believe that now that that's over, it's something she's going to do, and I completely understand why Ginny's supportive of it. What do you think? Write in, send voicemails, send emails, post in the forum. Let us know what you think of Hermione's decision to become a thinker. Well, I also, I don't think we can discuss Hermione's decision to become a thinker without talking about what Sirius to do. Sirius isn't doing the healthy thing of what he's wanted to do and go and be Harry's godfather. No, he's going and doing the thing that he thinks he has to. He's got to keep the Dementors in control. He's got to make sure that the people in Azkaban are truly the people that should be in there. He's focusing on what he thinks could be his fault or he would feel guilty about rather than going on and living in healthy healthy and normal life. It's interesting too, one of the little moments I really love that they throw in here is Hermione is embarrassed about her sex life with Ron. She's trying to deflect the questions for a moment so she turns it back on Ginny and she instantly realizes it was the wrong thing to say because Ginny breaks the veneer she has in so many of the early chapters. She's no longer confident. She's no longer resolute. She kind of looks at the floor, shuffles her shoes a little bit. She has no experience with other guys. She's been waiting for Harry. And honestly, I'm glad that they did this this way. I really am. Because I've read a lot of stories where they say, okay, well, Ginny decided that Harry wasn't going to get to his senses anytime soon. So she decided to just go out and, and jump anyone she could find. Now, I realize in canon that she did date several other people. But, you know, obviously she's not you know, got a sign around her neck saying, rent me for $20, you know? (laughs) And that's one of the things that this fic does so well. It characterizes Harry as the completely thick person who doesn't see what's in front of him. Due to his hero complex, he will not allow himself the opportunity to love someone, and he does not understand why anyone can love him. And Ginny honestly wonders why she waits around as much as she does, but she always does. And it's just one of the things that even in this chapter, Hermione says he'll come around, but she isn't sure of it, and Ginny isn't sure of it. And then what happens? Ron and Harry, sloshed out of their minds, show up at the door, and I love the moment where (laughs) Hermione seals the door, and then Ron double seals the door, and then Ginny threatens to tell about the time that Ron was dressed up in a dress, and it's it's such a lighthearted moment, and it just breaks through all of the tense anxiety that was in that room before with Hermione talking about training with the thinker and with Ginny recalling that the song on the radio reminds her of Tom Riddle and there's just so much angst in the scene and all of a sudden Harry is relaxed his shields are down he sees Ginny he cannot stop staring at her and for a few moments he holds her hand Ron gets it. Ron is drunk out of his mind. Ron gets what's happening with Harry. And it's just one of the moments in the story where they actually get to be ordinary teenagers. And all of the stupid reasons that hold people apart just don't matter for a few moments. And I think it's just a really, really 
good way to end the chapter is just to let these characters, just for a few moments, be normal people. And I think it's good that, you know, I think so much of the time we assume as readers that, you know, after Hogwarts, they're adults, they just go on and turn into mature, hardworking tax-paying individuals, assuming wizards pay taxes, but, I'm sure they you know, do. but you also have to remember, these kids are, you know, 17, 18 years old. I know when I was 17, I did not have my head screwed on in the right direction half the time. So, I obviously was not mature enough <laughs> to be making competent adult decisions. Yeah, how high are we putting this bar for them? <laughs> the- <laughs> You know, save the world, that's great, but you know what? You just, your your ability to communicate with women is awful, we're giving you an F. It's just, it's so sad, the thresholds that we put before these characters. Yeah, you know, they get to be stupid and do boneheaded things because they're kids, you know? They didn't have their awkward teenage years, they were too busy saving the world. Now they get to do all the stupid stuff that the rest of us were doing at that age. I think it's great. I just love the way that the chapter ends with Ron so nervous to tell Hermione he has a job, and through everything that Ron does over these chapters, the bloody job applications from just levels of stress they have and the annoyances and just everything that goes along with these characters being themselves, to end the chapter with Hermione jumping Ron's bones because she can't hold back anymore because she just loves the guy. And it's yeah. just and you just see it too. She so wants to be firm and she so wants to be angry, but she can't. And it, I just think it's just such a great way for the character to end this chapter. It's just I I, I yeah. just love it. I just love it. And then we get into the next chapter where we get the uh, the hangover the next day. <laughs> Don't you love how the chapter begins? It's Harry's curse car. No, wait. He's drunk. He's drunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Voldemort's back. Is he, he faked the whole thing? He's fine. Nope. Harry. Is no way. No. No. He just had too much to drink last night. And I think it's funny that you know any other normal person at that age, after a night of drinking, would know they would wake up with a hangover. Not Harry. Not Harry. His oh, first thought is that it's evil. No. Do you love the transformation that Butterbeer has in the Arabella and Xenia universe? In Joe Rowling stories. All the the thirteen year olds go to Hogsmeade and they have butter beers, but now butter beer will make you drunk. No, no, no! It was butter beer extra. Butter yeah. beer extra will make you drunk. Okay, right? Because that yeah. was the thing. Like, because it's like Harry sloshed on butter beer. I'm picturing a whole different Prisoner of Azkaban novel. This is, I think, one of the funnier introductory material that we have. Is this is Harry trying to process everything that happened the night before through his post-alcohol haze and uh, Ron is suffering as well but he doesn't seem to have it quite as bad as Harry does uh, partially because uh, as we knew from the last chapter at some point Goldie put Ron to work and so Ron had to stop drinking (laughs) and Harry didn't and obviously (laughs) obviously that made some difference in their condition Uh, this morning, they are discussing everything that happened, and one of the big things, we know that Ron got his job with with Goldie at the pub, we also know that Harry has now decided to try out for the Chudley Cannons. You have to feel so bad for Ron. He is so obsessed with the Chudley Cannons, 
and every other character just goes after him for it. He says they haven't won a game in a while, and Ginny screams, it's been 106 years! Ron is just so determined, and I just love the moment, too, where Ron has big news to share, and Harry remarks, oh, what big news? And Ron just kind of looks at them, you were there! And Harry says, I don't remember what happened. So Ron, you know, tells, you know, I, I I got a job and everyone's thrilled for him. And Harry's response says, oh, yeah, I knew that. They kind of sneak in that they've located a new place to house the prisoners instead of Azkaban, because we know from the earlier chapters that the Dementors have rebelled, gone crazy. So they can't house them at Azkaban anymore. It's too dangerous. So we know that Sirius is out at this new place. And it really upsets Remus, too. Yes. Remus, yes. Is, Remus, in his controlled voice, Sirius is at work. And he means to talk to Sirius about it because Sirius is neglecting Harry. And in the next chapter, Remus mentions it, and Sirius instantly realizes what he's doing. But it is so important for Sirius to concentrate on this project because he is so concerned that with the Wizarding World in shambles, they are taking the position you are guilty until proven innocent, and he cannot accept the fact that someone else may go through what he did for no reason. Yeah. And then we step into the ministry, <clears throat> and we are with... <laughs> what? I'm picturing the scene in the ministry. So we step into the ministry, and we've got a meeting with Bill and Arthur Weasley, and they're talking about the situation with the Dementors. One thing that I just find hilarious is that the new head of the Magical Law Enforcement Squad is Mundungus Fletcher. Fletcher. <laughs> and whom, of course, Mundungus Fletcher was only mentioned in passing at the very end of Goblet of Fire. So they grabbed onto a name and gave him a job. <laughs> they made him and, the head of magical war enforced. <laughs> and, you of course, what? we all know from canon that I don't think anyone would ever give Mundungus a job in magical <laughs> law enforcement. Didn't he, like, have to watch Harry for 20 minutes once and he nearly got killed by a pack of Dementors? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know what, we give... Let's be completely fair in this podcast. We give Arabella and Xenia so much credit for perfectly channeling the character of Ginny, doing so many things right, I think their luck ran out of Madunga's Fletcher. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And and I mean and the funny thing is there were a lot of stories that came out after the release of Goblet of Fire that did bring in the characters that they mentioned in passing and give them larger roles than they really did. Like Mundungus Fletcher in this story, there's also another story. Sabini. <laughs> right, yeah. They make Arabella Fig a professor at Hogwarts. There are many stories yes. where Blaise Sabini is a hot woman. I mean, there's different... I mean, right. You can, you can really go off the reservation here. You forget after the end isn't canon. I think when you see Madungus Fletcher as the head of magical law enforcement, it kind of brings you out just a little bit if you're, if you're yeah. into the canon. But. One thing that they do mention kind of in passing is the shield charm that's being worked on. Yes. And... That is something that will come more into play eventually, and they'll talk a little bit more about it. Um, you have to love. Obviously, they just kind of gloss over it. 
in the shield in this turn, particular sorry, instance. I keep talking over you. I and just picture the scene so far. You have Bill and you have Arthur. Arthur Weasley. He looks like he is slowly aging before your eyes. He's the only person in the ministry who, who even has a job title. He is taking on the full brunt of rebuilding the Wizarding World, of protecting the people from Dementors. He has no idea how to do that. He doesn't have the resources to do it. He's starting to feel for Cornelius Fudge. He's, here's the thing. This man is so low in the dumps that Cornelius Fudge is a sympathetic character to him. <laughs> and you just know someone needs to come in here. Someone needs to save him. What do you get? You get Charlie in a towel. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the story was so written by girls. Oh, it was so complete. Did you notice he has a tattoo that moves and breathes fire? That has yes. been done before. Really? Yes. And you just have to love that in the middle of his father's office, his brother's in there, he drops the towel, he just starts getting dressed because he was pressed for time. But don't worry, this guy has the plan that's going to save all of your lives. Yeah. Yes. And you just have to picture Arthur, he's probably on the verge of giving up hope, and all of a sudden just Charlie pops in in the towel, and you know what, maybe life is worth living. Right. <laughs> I mean, it kind of lets you know just how desperate a situation it is. <laughs> Yeah, if the naked guy is coming to save the day. <laughs> the naked guy has the plan, and I just love, too, that you, it, and it's just a credit to, to ANZ's writing, is that you have this just, you know, it's this tremendously tense scene, and within a couple of minutes, all you want to know is who is Charlie's assistant, and how long have they been dating? Right. Because that's right. what's really important here. I love the way that they slow without even you realizing it, they bring Fleur back into the story. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's, that's really what brought to me, is, like, I, I mean, I automatically thought Fleur, and, okay, Fleur's coming back. And, I mean, I mean, and I know, like, me personally, I'm still thinking, well, I thought there was supposed to be something going on between Bill and Fleur, so what's this that seems to be happening between Charlie and Fleur? Oh, so reading it now, first... Now, I, I didn't assume it was Fleur when I first read the story. Obviously, it was a woman, but I, I didn't automatically think of Fleur at this point. You see the effect of the love repellent very limited time that Bill spent with Fleur he describes almost as a dream. All of a sudden Fleur pops back into his head and it's like she's been held underwater all this time and she just bubbles to the surface. It was just, yeah. I really like the way that part was described. And and, uh, and obviously the 800 pound gorilla in the podcast at the moment is the fact that Charlie has brought up the idea of having dragons guard the Dementors at Azkaban. We managed to uh, talk around that subject without actually mentioning that fact. So this is why we're dealing Dealing with dragons again. But now Charlie is standing there in a towel with this huge dragon tattoo on his arm and his chest, and he's like, I've got a brilliant idea. I'm going to save everyone. Dragons. <laughs> and I Bill love says, <laughs> And then Bill says, and I imagine you'll be telling me they make good babysitters next. <laughs> and he gets so irritated because he has, like, you can, you can tell the man has a binder that's collated with graphs that will show this will work. And no one wants to give him a chance. And he, he is so frustrated by that. I don't think he realizes he's sitting in the office of the Minister of Magic in a towel. Yeah. Oh, it's such a great scene. I love that scene. And I, and I also love the comparison they make between Charlie and Hagrid. I don't think I think that's something that hasn't been done before. I agree. I've seen actually I've seen those in other fics. It hasn't been done in this one yet. I have seen other fics that really draw that connection between Charlie and Hagrid. But um, yeah, and I just and I know this isn't probably where you were going. I just love the references to Hagrid 
that creep through these chapters. He yeah. have, He's not in the story, but you can tell Harry feels responsible for his death. And that's one thing in general that I love that creeps through these chapters. You get little tidbits of what's happened. They fill in the plot very basically. You get the bone work, you get the structure of it very slowly. You know that Lucius Malfoy is dead. You know he tried to kill Arthur Weasley. You know that... Voldemort attacked Hogwarts in Harry's fifth year and his seventh. You know that Dumbledore died. We get a tiny attack. mention of Fred and George Weasley. A tiny mention of Fred and George Weasley. What was it? It, it was the uh, the food. It was the food um, when Ron went shopping. I know because last week I remember you said you couldn't find any references to Fred and George. I was rereading it tonight. I saw that. I sent Kim and Izzy a message. By the way, they're alive. <laughs> they have been yeah. sighted. And this is one of the things I thought was lacking in chapters two and three that just really come alive in, in chapters four through seven. It just slow. It's it sprinkles just the little tidbits of what's happened, and then it goes back and it fills everything later. Uh, one thing I really do want to get to because I've read the story before, and this is something that just escaped me uh, tonight when I was rereading it. I fell into the trap that Arabella and Xenia had set up, and I should have known better, but I fell right into it. I want to talk about the scene where. Uh, Ron and Harry uh, leave Lupin Lodge. They go to play some Quidditch, and Ron sees something. He sees Draco Malfoy at the Lewis house, and Ron looks now, murderous. I just like would like to say right here, one of the things I really, really, really appreciate about this story is that there are no redeeming qualities attributed to Draco Malfoy. He is a bad guy. He is going to be a bad guy. He is not going to be redeemed. You mean he's not getting together with Jenny by chapter 10? Oh, of course. I apologize to those of you who haven't read chapters 8, 9, 10. And I apologize to anyone out there who's a fan of the redeemable Malfoy character. But Joe Rowling herself... my hope and dreams again, Rena. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do that all the time. We're going to pick so many fics where Draco gets together with Ginny now just to see how high we can get... My blood pressure right, to go. His blood pressure to go. But, I... <laughs> but, I mean, Joe Rowling herself has said that Draco Malfoy, people get that character confused with the kid who plays him in the movies, who is a good-looking kid, and so they want to think that he's redeemable, and he's I think, not. I think... I honestly do not agree with J.K. Rowling saying that, because I honestly have been reading Draco Ginny since I started in the fanfiction world seven years ago, and they hadn't even thought about making the movies at that point in time. Draco and Ginny have been along around so much longer than we ever started associating Tom Felton with Draco Malfoy. I think that's a good point, too, because I think I've read fix where, where Draco has been redeemed in one way, one way or another. It depends how you do it. You cannot start a fic off. Chapter 1, Draco is a perfect gentleman. No one will read it, or I'm sure people will read it. I won't read it, because it doesn't make any sense. If you want It's to not take, plausible. It's not plausible. If you want to take Draco at the end of Half-Blood Prince, and you want to write a 90-chapter fic that shows him starting off as the Draco we know and hate in Chapter 1, and slowly over the course of the fic, slowly, gradually becomes a character who is redeemable, I will read it. That's fine. But you can't start him off as that character. You need to explain why he goes from A to B. I mean, and I can even, I can grasp the fix where he comes along at the end and helps Harry because he's afraid for his own life. And he does it not because he sees a greater 
good in the world, but because he's afraid of getting his own ass kicked. I mean, I can I can read those, and I don't necessarily believe them, but they're easier for me to stomach than ones where he just makes this huge character flip, and all of a sudden it becomes Harry's best friend and all that kind of crap. So we have the scene where Ron and Harry are going to play some Quidditch. They walk by Marvin Lewis's house, and they look up, and Ron, for a moment, his face is full of anger. He thinks he sees Draco Malfoy up on the porch, and he looks murderous. And the effect it has on Harry, Harry becomes nearly nauseous at the prospect. It brings out a side in Ron that is fiercely protective of Hermione, which is vengeful for everything that Lucius Malfoy, and in his mind, the Malfoys did to Hermione. And he wants to literally kill Draco Malfoy at that point, and Harry reins him back in. This is the Harry that in the first chapters of this fic wasn't able to laugh, was barely able to acknowledge people, and you know, is essentially in a zombie mode. And this is the Harry now that is supporting someone else, who is pulling someone else back from the brink of doing something unforgivable. And one of the things which I love so much is they, they're out, they come back to the lodge, and Hermione has to talk about something. And my first instinct was she's going to tell Ron that she wants to be a thinker. And there's even a reference to Hermione had mentioned to Ron that she wanted to take an apprenticeship on an island. Reading it was foreshadowing to her wanting to train to be a thinker, and it may actually have started the fight between them in Chapter 2, the fight that we never get to see, but that makes Hermione swear, so obviously it was a pretty big fight. And I was completely dumbfounded when she tells Harry, you need to stay for this too, and says that she saw Draco Malfoy. Yeah, that did surprise me. It slightly disappointed me because I thought that the fic had enough going on that it didn't need to bring in Draco Malfoy, although I certainly changed my mind, you know, reading on in future chapters to see how well the the plot um, develops. But I thought it was a little bit of, you know, dum dum dum, here's the bad guy. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. You hear the, like, what are the, the fr- ominous music in your head. It's like, what are the odds that Draco Malfoy is the next door neighbor? You know what I mean? It's just... <laughs> But um, you know, I, I, I did get the sense that it was a little too convenient that he happened to live next door. It was you know a little too transparent of positioning, but I get past that in later chapters. But I was very, um, I was very fooled by their writing, and I, it, w- it was extremely well written when Hermione drops the bombshell about Draco. And it's one of the most fascinating things to read at this point. And from here until the end of what we're going to discuss tonight, I am completely blown away uh, by the characterization of Ron and Hermione. Hermione has been crying. Presumably, she is so upset that Draco is nearby. She tells of having to stare off um, at him, and she had her hand on her wand, and he had his hand on his wand, and it just, it's only been several weeks since the last battle, and it's just, it's such a moment, it's, it's such a- It's still so raw. It's still so raw, and so traumatizing. This is the son of the man who tortured her parents, and this is supposed to be her haven for the summer. This is supposed to be where she finds- peace and he is living next door and Ron who is overprotective you know in the simplest of situations becomes positively murderous over this 
Hermione was so afraid to even tell him that Draco was there, but obviously she has to because he's living next door. And just the characterizations. Harry puts down his butterbeer and leaves the room. All of the you know positive steps he's taking in the past few chapters, opening up to his friends, starting to support other people instead of just needing to be supported himself. You can just see that be wiped away. And you feel so bad for Harry because for everything that he has and for for everything he has done and now even the troubles he's had finding peace now Draco Malfoy is the next door neighbor yeah it's just you, you you feel so bad for Harry but this is coming up to one of the scenes that I love so much in this fic I think this is my favorite scene so far uh, Ron is in the kitchen he's going to work Hermione has gone to sleep at six o'clock at night Hermione uh, is emotionally drained. Harry is emotionally drained. And I just love almost every word that they write. Ron goes up to the bedroom to get changed for work. Harry is pretending to sleep in the bed. He knows Harry so well. He knows Harry's not even sleeping. He goes down to the kitchen. He talks with Ginny. He does not want Ginny walking outside. He does not want Ginny going anywhere near Draco because he is so concerned for her safety. And you can just see Molly Weasley come out of Ginny there. I really like this scene, too, and I think the reason that I like it is because for so much of this interaction, even a lot of people try to play the whole brother-sister relationship with Harry and Hermione, but between Ron and Ginny, you actually have that familial bond. I mean, these two have literally grown up together. They've known each other their entire lives, and... You know, you get to see them actually interacting like a brother and sister, like a mature brother and sister would be able to interact. They get to talk, and they talk to each other like adults. Oh, you know, and, they- and they can say things to each other that they might not say to somebody else because they're, they're family. You know, and, and no matter how close you are to someone, there's something to be said for having that familial bond. Ron is the character that we know from the books. He is the speak first, grab first, ask questions later, short fuse, loyal friend to Harry, but he also has these amazing parts to his character that Arabella and Xenia have created in the three years that they've uh, moved the story beyond what Joe Rowling wrote. And you have the moment where Ron is so protective of Ginny he is so afraid that she'll be harmed by Draco Malfoy. She screams to him, you think I don't know what you're talking about? And she knows... Now, think about this. This is three weeks before Ginny was about to stand in front of a death curse for Harry. She was ready to sacrifice herself for Harry. And it's a very claustrophobic flashback. No descriptions. It's a few lines. You're in the common room. There's not a lot of people there. Most of the school has been, for better or for worse, abandoned um, during this time of war. And you just have these three characters in a very tense, very uh, wartime moment. And they're talking about Expecto Sacrificum charm. And Harry asks, do I need to feel the same way in regards to Ginny? And I just want to talk just about the look on Ron's face. He turns away... He swallows. You can tell it's such an emotional moment for him. His sister is preparing to sacrifice herself for someone that she loves, and the person's response is, do I have to love her back? Indicating he doesn't. And he probably has such a, you know, just a range of feelings on that, and this is his best friend on top of that, and just look at the situation. He has no way to react to it. He has no avenue to react because things are just happening so fast. Ron has no right to tell her she cannot go outside if she wants to. 
And I mean, and I just, I really like the scene. I like their interaction. I like how they're supportive of each other, even though they've just gotten in this little spat, you know, they're brother and sister. They, they bounce back. Really enjoyed their interaction. She offers Ron so much help in this chapter too. When they leave uh, Lupin Lodge and start walking uh, down to, down to the pub, she clues Ron into what's going on with Hermione's character. Hermione does not blame Draco Malfoy for what happened to her parents. Now, this is someone who has called her a filthy little mudblood since he met her. This is someone who has been extremely, extremely harmful to Hermione over the years that he's known her. She doesn't blame him. And neither does Ginny. In fact, Ginny pities Draco because he watched his father die. His father kill himself. Yes, it was he tried to kill it was he tried to kill Arthur and the spell rebounded, is that correct? Yes. The spell backfired, yeah. And he sees his father die. Ginny pities him. This is the man who forced her to go through hell in the Chamber of Secrets. This is someone who has personally tortured one of her best friend's parents. She pities him. And she pities his son. And it's a perspective that you don't expect from these characters given what they've gone through. And it just shows you how much Ron has to gain from Ginny. And I, it's one of my favorite lines in the story. When he finds out that Hermione is not upset that Draco is living nearby. Hermione is upset. Ron will do something to Draco and Ron will be taken away. That is her greatest fear. And the line I love the most is, she said that, he finally asked quietly. He suddenly felt a strong determination never to fight with Draco Malfoy for any reason. And you, I his, think that's a great character moment for him. His his love for Hermione is so strong that he is murderous at the thought of Malfoy coming anywhere near her. But if Hermione is that afraid of losing Ron, Ron will completely go against everything that he stands for for Hermione. I just think that's a great moment. And I love the close of the chapter, too, with Ron and... Jimmy just joking around outside the pub as brother and sister and just coming to this understanding that he isn't the overbearing big brother anymore who gets to boss his little sister around. She's a woman. She's gone through everything that he's gone through and there's just, like you said before, they're realistic, mature adults and they're written like that and they're just, they're just, they come to such an understanding by the end of the chapter that he is so glad she's there and he's so glad she's staying through his shift. Not because he's concerned about her thinks she can't take care of herself. He's just glad that she's there. And so then we get into chapter 7, which starts out um, talking about Remus and about his experiences with his transformations every month. And I think that it's the backstory that they give on um, his transformations, on, on what happens when he goes for his transformations. I mean, I think they, they did a really good job in capturing both, you know, the humanity of the man and the base instinct of the animal within, in Remus and in the other werewolves that are present at that time. It's such an interesting way it's written, too, and Kim, you can shed some light on this. I'm not sure how they usually uh, write his transformations and other fics. It's such a lonely characterization. It's such a lonely way of writing it. He... Like, I mean, most most authors sit there and sensationalize, like, and make it seem like, ooh, ah, great, Remus, and Remus is a werewolf, wow, cool. Here it just kind of, it shows you, it shows you the darker side. It's almost depressing, it shows you, it, like you said, it shows you the more lonely side of him being a werewolf and the transformation. It's not exciting, it's not cool, it's, 
hard. Yeah, if you if you watch the Prisoner of Azkaban, it's something where you see some where you see Remus, you know, almost like a cartoon character, you know, turning into the Incredible Hulk. It's not like that. He's he has such a sad existence. He cannot work. He is forbidden to work. You see him talking to another werewolf whose daughter is about to go to Hogwarts next year. He's a regular guy. He needs some help. He knows that Remus knows Arthur Weasley. Can Arthur do anything to help us? I need to work. You know, there's temporary jobs he can do, but it's not enough. And you just, you feel so bad for these characters. Once a month, you apparate into a room. You're tripping over each other. You swallowing the wolfsbane potion and i love more than in any other fic the way they describe the wolfsbane potion because any other fic it's just something to drink but in this it is so complicated to make it is so dangerous for the werewolf this putrid concoction it is useless with sugar it turns you into a lethargic useless beast it's just the way it's described and just when the characters drink it you can almost smell it in the room when you're reading the fic it is just it is disgusting it is vile and then you drink the potion and you drop down you know into the cellar and you just sleep in the floor and it is just such a lonely existence for remus and i think you're right it's just it's it's so much unlike anything else it, it makes you feel so sad for him i mean we hear a lot more about severus snape than we have at any point in time everyone everyone's still at the point in time where we're still convinced that severus is a good guy and that he's going to come through in the end i mean it almost seems like those two had a good working relationship through all so many other places so remus and severus hated each other but in this they respect each other and while they weren't friends they were almost good acquaintances yeah which i thought was really interesting and like i said definitely something different than what you're used to seeing between severus and this and then you see I, th- I think one of the things that just i mean it nearly made me cry just from the whole thing you know remus is going through all of these things that he's thinking about as he's making this transformation but one thing he doesn't have is he doesn't have the smell of Padfoot. Padfoot is not there with him. And it's been how many years that he's had to go through these transformations alone. But in his werewolf state, he still is looking for Padfoot. And it's so interesting, too, the way it describes uh, the Marauders. Uh, Prongs, James, is, is, is the large, magnificent uh, beast. Uh, Peter Pettigrew is described as the deft one. And Sirius Padfoot is described as essentially the mate. It is the one that completes Remus. It's the one that will howl with him. It is the one that will protect everyone from him, will protect him from hurting himself. It is the one that completes him. It is so moving when you read it. When Sirius was in Azkaban for 13 years, Remus believed him to be a murderer. And he hated himself for it, but he still desperately missed him. Yeah. Just as he slips further and further away from being Remus to the point where he has no memory, nothing beyond the instinct. He's just the wolf. The closer he gets to that, the more he needs Adfoot to be with him. Yeah. I mean, that just, I think, is one of the most touching parts of the whole story. And so we start with Mooney as the wolf desperately wanting Sirius, and then we step into, oh, hey, here he is. And <laughs> Found him. Which is, yeah, exactly. It's a really interesting juxtaposition, in my opinion, anyway. But he is at the castle of uh, Culparat, which is the new location for the prison, where they're going to be putting the criminals instead of Azkaban. And 
it just, I, I love the descriptions of this place. It had been underwater. It's got ghosts of sea creatures. It's, it's green and it's got algae on the walls and seaweed is still on all the turrets. And I just, I think that's a great description. And it just sounds like such a nice, depressing place to stick. <laughs> it sounds so much nicer than Azkaban, which is so sad. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so. And we, we have an interaction with Sirius and Mad-Eye Moody, who are bringing people into Culparat, and they're keeping them stunned because they're not able to confine the prisoners yet. And since they don't want to bring the Dementors back and they don't have the imprisonment charm ready, just stunning the prisoners. And one of the things, I think it's one of the greatest lines, Sirius talks to Remus about what they're doing, about stunning the prisoners, and Remus says, we can stun them for days or weeks or months, and there won't be any serious effects. I mean, Mad-Eye Moody was stunned daily for almost a year. He's fine. <laughs> Sirius is like, no, he's not. <laughs> that, isn't that the thing, too? It's like, you look at the guy who's been twitching, and every time he walks his yeah. leg, like, Jack's, oh, I take him every day, I'm fine. It's, it's... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh. I really like that Sirius is playing the advocate for anyone who might be in his situation. He's playing the advocate at the expense of his relationship with Harry, too, if you realize it. He is spending so much time away from Lupin Lodge. He's spending so little time with Harry. He barely, I think he's there for, what, the first night? And then day two, he's gone working on this project for Arthur. And, and yes, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact, you know, he wants to be the advocate for the people who might be falsely imprisoned. But I think a large part of it also is he doesn't know what to do with Harry. He knows how to throw himself into work, and he doesn't know what to do with Harry. And so it's easier to distract himself. Exactly. It. And how, how many times does he say, why did James leave me with Harry? Why did James and Lily do this to me? Yeah. You have to love the flashbacks and one of the one of the strengths uh, i think of chapter seven is that through remus's transformation we get the backstory that up until this chapter has been dropped in dribs and drabs we see some of the final hours of hogwarts before the final battle we see back into the days of the marauders and just really get inside this character of remus lupin and we really agree thinking back to episode one when we were discussing should Sirius, you know, have been the loud guy in the morning and should Remus have been quiet and the, the entire debate about the coffee this gives you the backstory to flesh out why that character is the way he is. I want to talk about the flashback in chapter seven because it's so interesting, the dynamic when you see the events right before the last battle at Hogwarts. And it's so interesting, the comparisons that I took between the character of Remus and the characters of Ginny and Hermione when, and Harry as well, when you see Sirius about to execute Wormtail, Remus feels pity towards Wormtail. He feels compassion. He is angry at what Wormtail did. He can never forget it, but he feels pity on this pathetic, crying, morally lost character. And just compare that to how Hermione and Ginny treat Malfoy. Consider it to how Harry treats Ron when he pulls Ron back from wanting to murder Draco. It just shows how much these characters have in common. I just want to point out the end to chapter 7. Just when you think you can't feel any worse for Remus, it's when you discover that Sirius once dated a Slytherin, and you find out that Remus once dated a Slytherin, and it was someone who essentially dated him, not on a dare, but almost for the thrill of it. They wanted to date the wolf. And 
so much in this chapter is how much of Remus is the man and how much of Remus is the wolf. In terms of being employed, he's a wolf. He can't get a job. In terms of his friends, he's Remus. How does the outside world treat him? He's the only experience he's had in a, in a, you know, in a quasi romantic setting was with someone who just wanted to date the wolf. And it makes him feel so empty and so hollow and like the Wolfsbane potion, like a lethargic, useless beast. And that's how Remus ends this chapter. At a moment of triumph and a moment of peace for everyone else, Remus is alone. And it just says, it just speaks volumes about his character. Remus has received a letter from Hogwarts, from Minerva McGonagall, offering him the Care of Magical Creatures appointment, which I think is really, really interesting. Because in so many stories, they always bring Remus back as the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. In Prisoner of Azkaban, he did a good job teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts. But, you know, it says, as you are a magical creature yourself, I find you ideally suited for the job. Because werewolves are still classified as dark creatures. He has the opportunity as the Care of Magical Creatures teacher to bring up a generation of Hogwarts students that aren't afraid. He has a chance. You know, he is a magical creature. And so many people are afraid of so many of these, you know, granted Hagrid brought in a lot of monsters, but, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are many, many magical creatures that are not scary, that you don't need to be afraid of. And here's a way for him to bring bring about acceptance for his kind through teaching. First we have Remus by himself, and then we have Sirius by himself, and then we have them together. And they're talking about Pulparat and about work and about Remus's transformation, and Sirius really wants to be a part of it, but, you know, it's another thing that he can't be there with him, and he knows that it's hard for him. And then we have the article written by Eloise Midgen, who, again, I just, I love her character. And here she is, and she is attempting, with her writing, to single-handedly change the impression that people have for Sirius. And from the amount of fin mail that he gets, it's obvious that she is successful. And I love love Harry's reaction to Sirius's fan mail. Because for the first time, he doesn't have to deal with it. It's not Harry that's dealing with it. So he can see the humor in the situation that all of his friends saw when he was getting the fan mail. And think about this, the character of Harry. He doesn't understand why Ron and Hermione are so happy when they come back from the lake. He faced Voldemort, but he couldn't ask a girl to the Yule Ball. He is the most sheltered character. And in this case, he is the only one who gets the fan mail. Yeah, And this is one of those moments where he looks at Sirius and he is the adult and Sirius is the child. And you just, and I love the three different uh, pieces of fan mail Sirius gets. There's one which is quasi acceptable. It's someone who's obviously hitting on him. The second one is the girl at Hogwarts who followed him around, uh, you know, spraying an ineffective love potion at him and making herself look like an idiot. And the third one is the Slytherin that Sirius was involved with. Right. I just, I have to say that I love that the first fan mail letter is from Lydia Wickham from uh, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. I think that it's hilarious that they threw her name in there. (laughs) I did not even catch that, and I just watched Pride and Prejudice. What character was that? Uh, Lydia, Lydia, the youngest of the Bennett sisters. Oh. When she marries Wickham. (laughs) 
So the letter is, is oh. I like a wizard with principles. If you are ever in Brighton, you're welcome to visit oh. Lydia Wickham. I just watched that. I think that. that's just hilarious that they brought that in there. Is she the one that gets married in Pride and Prejudice? The youngest one, yeah. Oh, she go- oh okay. I love the story so much better now. <laughs> I was on the fence, you know, after the end. I was thinking, you know, mm, okay, story. I'm, now I'm I'm squarely back in A&Z's column. I'm, I'm really excited about the story again. Yeah. And so I just, I think it's great that, you know, they they brought that in there. And I think that, I love this scene just because everybody is, is laughing. And for the first time in this entire story, everyone is just laughing, the exception of Remus. Look at the look at the description of this fic. It's after the war is over, virtually everybody lives. It's summer vacation. Everyone's together. It's what you were hoping for during the seven years of Hogwarts. And you get it. And within two or three chapters, you have so many problems that you need to deal with that you never get to enjoy it. These four chapters that we've discussed tonight allow you brief moments. You have the angst. You have parts where you want to grab, you know, the characters by the throats and, and shake some sense into them. But you have those moments. This moment, it, with Sirius and Eloise's article, th- just the way Harry is relaxed around his godfather and the way that they're able to enjoy each other, it, it makes all of the problems, or a great deal of the problems from the past few chapters, it just makes them go away. And I really, I just, I think that's a great way to end this chapter. And it's a great way to end our podcast for this week. We'd love to hear what you all thought about our discussion. Uh, All of our contact information is available on our website, which is potterficweekly.com. We encourage you to send in uh, voicemail responses tonight. We took a lot of positions that you may not agree with. Call into the show and let us know what you think. Be a vocal part of this podcast. Uh, One of the things that's really happened in the last week is a lot of people have gone involved and it's made it so much more of a fun experience for everybody. So we really hope you'll do that. Agree with us, disagree with us, uh, just be heard. And tell your friends about us too. We would love to have more listeners. We We love what we have, but we could always use more. And we're going to have a challenge for the week and the challenge isn't for you, the challenge is for us. Kim has devoted herself on the next week. She is going to post more on the forum that by this time next week, when you download episode three of Pyrofic Weekly, Kim will be the top poster on the Pyrofic Weekly forum. She is going to surpass Jen and myself. And if you and she needs somebody there, to talk to, to message me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to run out of things to talk about. <sighs> We'd like to thank Harry and the Potters once again for generously allowing us to use their music in this podcast. We would like to thank Leela Starsky for our fan art. We would like to thank Danielle very, very much for her incredible artwork of Harry. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Have a good night, everyone. See you on the forums. In the next edition of Potterfic Weekly, we will be discussing chapters 8 through 11 of After the End. We will also be having a discussion segment in a future episode, the topic of which will be the end of canon, how it affects fanfic. Visit potherficweekly.com and send in your feedback. Okay, someone just breathed into their microphone really super loud. Sorry, was that me? (laughs) All right, can we start the show over? (laughs) I'm sorry. We are dying and we're two minutes into this thing. Okay. So if you have any questions for them, start preparing them now. Start leaving voicemails on 
our website, which is Parfic Weekly. Okay, that makes absolutely no sense. How do you leave voicemails on our website? <laughs> uh, this will be a 19-hour show. Where did I... Was I... 19, okay. Just 19. Okay, let me back this up. So if you have any questions for them, start getting your voicemail. Okay. <sighs> Someone else say what I was trying okay, to say. Okay, what are you trying to say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you have okay. any questions, if you have any start questions thinking now. For Zenya, please leave them on our voicemail or send us a comment, email, or anything, any other system on our contact page. You can post. What? Uh, shut up. Before we. Okay, Sorry. Right, let me say this. What that? Oh my god. Okay. I'm sorry. I have the hiccups. <laughs> 50 minutes in, and we're halfway through the introduction. Well, I also. I don't think we can discuss Hermione's decision to become a thinker without talking about what Cyrus is doing right now. Cyrus has, since he got out of Azkaban, he's wanted to be Harry's godfather. But Harry, that, that would be the healthy thing for Cyrus, Sirius to do. Sirius isn't doing that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me try that over again. We can't really discuss Hermione's decision as a thinker without going back and looking at what Sirius is doing right now. 